Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about criminally underutilized licenses. I mean, we're going to be talking about a lot of things. That's our topic. And I'm feeling really good about that topic because it comes from a place that you have been actually playing something that it applies to, and that always makes me very happy. So, Rob, I know you've been playing something that, uh, that tickles your heart, tickles your fancy, and I was trying to think of a good Battlestar reference, but, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm tired. There, there has to be a good one. Um, makes you feel like a young toaster again. Mm. That that could that could be one yeah. uh, that, that hacks your mainframe. <laughs> uh, that makes your oh that makes your spine glow red. Yes, um, that's, that's perfect. That, that's way hornier than that, I maybe. That is actually for, pretty but, horny. Yeah, uh, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> we'll go with it. So, yeah, I've been playing Battlestar Galactica Deadlock, uh, which is a game from uh, Slytherin. And it was developed by Black Lab Games, and I just so it's a it's a war game strategy game, uh, based around the first Cylon War, uh, ah. but it's based on it's based on the new Battlestar Galactica, okay. and the thing the thing about this is like I there's I just did not expect that there was any way this was going to be good, right? Mm. Like, uh, with with all due respect to Slytherin, there's a bit of a track record there of them making very war game ass war games, which are maybe like long on ideas and really short on production values, uh, particularly when it comes to things that they think are going to be a little more uh, poppy than say a Gary Grigsby like hex based war war game epic. Uh, so I went into this pretty with a lot of reservations, uh, I gotta say. And the other part of this is that. I don't think there was ever a good Battlestar Galactica game. Uh, maybe, maybe the board game, although, although I have mixed feelings about that. But the only other new BSG game I remember was like a, a vehicle shooter, I want to say. Like an arcade shooter for like the original Xbox or it was the yeah. early days of the 360 that was like really underwhelming. Uh, I think you like flew a Viper around like a 2D... Like basically... Remember the uh, like the mode seven like snow speeder sequences in yes. uh, the SNES Empire Strikes Back, which is oh, awesome yes. for the for, for its time. I think they basically like went that route with uh, the early Battlestar Galactica video game, and it just it it didn't it, it didn't fly. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like Battlestar, and it's really unfortunate because I think Battlestar Galactica had. It was a universe you could have done a lot with, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how we didn't get a Free Space 2-style Viper pilot uh, sim. I, like, how did that not happen? Maybe it's just it arrived at the wrong moment uh, where nobody had joysticks anymore. Uh, that, that entire genre had kind of died off. You could have had a pretty cool, um, you know, Marines fighting Cylon, uh, you know, uh, Centurions aboard spaceships that could have been cool too didn't get anything like that uh the entire license was just kind of allowed to go to waste and it was really unfortunate yeah so here i am kind of delighted that somebody did something sensible with it which is like and you know it's a commander adama simulator uh in a, nice. in a lot of ways and they really nailed a, a lot of things about it um I you know one of the things that is really cool here is the strategic map is literally one of those like um, command tables you see in the headquarters in some of the episodes like where they're moving the miniature uh, 
the miniatures of the spaceships around the table, you like can walk around that table in game. That's your strategic interface. Oh my god! Um, yeah, no, it's it's really neat. the The other cool thing is that after each tactical battle, and the tactical battles are just if you've played any like uh, naval war game where it's all about like maneuvering arcs of fire and you know timing your special attacks, this is very familiar. It's not breaking any new ground on that front. Uh, but the cool thing is after every battle, you can watch a sort of video replay of the engagement. Oh, nice. And that replay is done in um, sort of that documentary, like cinema verite, shaky cam style mm. of the Battlestar uh, battle sequences. So you've got like the camera struggling to pull focus and like <laughs> lots of dramatic cuts. The rumble uh, when you yeah. know, something gets a little close and it kind of shakes a little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's full of those like it, it's full of those things that make it feel like authentic to Battlestar Galactica, which is awesome and totally unexpected now that it's been like what, 10, 12 years since this was like the big thing. Yeah, it I think it went off like it stopped in 2009. I think that was the you know, the the year that the disastrous yeah. horrible last episode aired. So well, you know, that that's moment yeah, zero, well, you know, that's the <laughs> um Great show. Great show. It was. Hor- its highs horrible, were very high. Horrible. Horrible. Like, among the worst of all time finales. I, I uh... I, I think... Or maybe biggest cop-out of all time, is, is how I'd put it. Like, biggest sci-fi, like, chestnut of old chestnuts cop-out ending of all time. I think. Yeah, the... No, I, I totally... I, I do agree with that. Like... The fact that at the end they kind of just throw up their hands and really admit they don't know how to resolve this. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of their big mysteries, they never satisfyingly resolve what was, uh, you know, the the six that uh, Gaius Baltar had seen for ages. Uh, you know, what did a lot of this mean? The show never really figured that out. Um, yeah, there were a lot of, like, crucial plot elements that the show never addressed to its detriment, uh, which is really frustrating. But along that way, like... You know that late that late series uh, mutiny was incredible. It was very cool. That was very very cool. Up, honestly, up until the very last part of the last episode, yeah. I'm I'm good. It could I would have been happy as hell if it just ended on a fucking oh no, just cut spaceships. It's fine. It's fine. It would have been better than what happened. I know writers always want to you know have things end on some sort of like biblical note, but literally doing that. Is horrible. <laughs> it is. And especially because, like, having something echo the Bible was probably, like, a pretty rad move around the dawn of the novel as an art form. <laughs> totally. Like, totally. Yeah, it was probably like, holy shit. They were basically, you know, it was basically, <laughs> uh, they, they, were, they were doing, uh, you know, the New Testament. That's, that's crazy. That is wild. Now it's pretty passe. Yeah. Um, like I don't think it's more infamous than than Lost, right? We just spent year after year reassuring people that like, no man, this isn't purgatory. Like they're <laughs> totally not dead. Like, uh, the, the, believe me, everything's going to be answered. But that that explanation that everyone arrived at halfway through the first season definitely isn't the explanation. By the way, everyone's going to. <laughs> by the way, it's going to end in this ambiguous church. Yep. Yeah. Like it's it's. You don't need to give me the answers, show. Like, 
you know, if you're any showrunners are out there, I just want to let you know, you know, speaking to you, showrunners, you don't need to give me all the answers. Just don't make every single character act radically against every principle they stand for ever in the universe, just all of a sudden, because it means you can have a cool biblical ending. Just, 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 that's all I ask. That's all I ask. It's okay. I, I'm still, I'm still, I, I actually came to the series late. So I only actually watched the whole thing you know, like four or five years ago. It's still a little bit fresh for me. Yeah. Uh, whereas everybody else experienced it in 2009 is like, Danielle, it's fine. Get over it. It's okay. Um, I get it. I understand. It's just, you know, sometimes things disappoint you. You could end on, on a really high note like Star Trek Voyager. I recently watched the, uh, the final episode of Star Trek Voyager on a plane back from PAX, and that was pretty cool. Uh, so, you know, that's... Uh, I... I was going to say... Star Trek is also kind of an underused license in no, terms of totally. done well, at least. I know there's been some Star Trek games. I know there's been an MMO that at least some people liked. I know there was a horrible Star Trek Voyager game that was just like Seven of Nine's tits are big polygons, and that was wait, pretty much sure? all. There was definitely oh, wait, an oh, FPS. Okay, well, hold on. I'm Now maybe you're right. Uh, but <laughs> I, thought you, I think you're going to leave it as there was a Star Trek Voyager game that was Seven of Nine's tits. And I was like, <laughs> I don't think they would have licensed that. Like, I mean, that was, yeah. That would have been pre-mobile <laughs> games. Like, I mean, certainly if the series was out now, hell yeah, there'd be like 12 Seven of Nine tits games. But. Exactly. Seven of, right, Star Trek Seven of Nine tits. Like, it's three, you know, little ellipses there. It's like that. Subtitle, subtitle, subtitle tits. It's perfect. Okay, TV it was called Star Trek Voyager Elite Force, and it was from yes, 2000. That's the shooter, yes. Yes. Okay, Which apparently well, I, I wasn't remember it very poorly. This is Raven Software, actually. Holy yeah. shit. Um, apparently, I oh, oh, I see why I thought it was bad. I think only the PS2 port was like No, bad, but I think bad. it might have been bad. Yeah. No, that's the thing, is like, I remember, because I do have feelings about this, because I did play it on the PC, and I remember at the time there was a lot of like, holy shit! There's a good Star Trek shooter. That's yeah. pretty wild. And I think what it was just a bad was, port or something. No, I think. but yeah. I'm not sure it was a good game. Like, <laughs> it was a competent shooter that was like themed around Star Trek. But man, I don't know. Like, it just felt yeah. really weird. Like. Star Trek is not a real shootery universe. It's uh, super not. Yeah, it's super and they, not. And they tried to get it there, like, so that the phaser rifles were these big badass things that instantly phasered somebody out of existence. But, like, yeah. uh, pistols took forever. And maybe that's a little true to the show. But the, the main thing was, like, it was an interpretation of Voyager that was all, like, Every problem is is basically solved with the SWAT team uh, going aboard like a strange location and just kicking ass. Yeah, I mean there are definitely actiony episodes of Star Trek. It, it can be it's a show that can be a little a little dumb sometimes for sure. Uh, but like that that was never really the point. And Voyager also gets pooped on all the time as like the the runt of the litter, which I don't. It's a runt in a very good litter. What's in my opinion, and and maybe not even the runt actually, to be honest with you. How much of that rep do you think is just because like there's a latent sexism around critiques of that show that like uh, maybe people aren't lot. fully cognizant of a yeah. whole hell of a lot, and also not your dad syndrome because that that it came out in 1995 when DS9 was still on 
you know, beloved Next Generation had just ended, and people yeah, were like, right. "This is not my dad's Star Trek," you know, that kind of. Mm. Um, and also, let me just put it out there: all Star Treks suck at first, except for the very first one. The original was pretty cool right away. I've just started watching that. It's like, are you liking it? Are you enjoying it? I am loving it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very uneven. Like, yeah. there are some episodes that are just, like, straight up incompetent. <laughs> totally. Um, like, God, there's one where this... The other thing is they recycle a lot of devices, right? Oh, like, yeah. it's people with magical <laughs> abilities and shit. Uh, there's a lot of... I swear to God, like, I am maybe ten episodes into the first season, if that. Okay. And they've already done, like, four or five episodes that have hinged on... It's a beautiful, seductive woman, but oh no, she's a hag, <laughs> and it's terrible. It's so sexist. It's it's so funny to me watching the original series and watching it go from being like honestly progressive for the time to absolute regressive, just sexist bullshit. It like within six times within one episode, often like this happens all the time where it'll be like, oh, you know, at least a competent woman who's working, you know, clear. Uhura is like a competent, she's a lieutenant, she does her job well, she's like, she's smart. So we have her, and especially being, you know, a black woman in the 60s, and then we'll have like Lieutenant Pissy Pants or whatever, who just screams and like the nearest man who's next to her, she's on the away mission, you know, so she's supposedly good at her job, but like she sees something she doesn't like, screams and grabs the nearest man's arm. Like that happens all the time. And it's just like, well, your heart was in the right place for part of this episode. I guess you <laughs> guess it went away. <laughs> yeah, there's boy. It is like right there in the. Uh, so if you watch it on Netflix, it starts with the pilot that never actually aired. Mm. Uh, right where there's a woman who is the first officer. Right, it's Majel Barrett. Right, who's yeah, she's the first officer, and it was like, holy fuck, what a vision of like genuine like feminism right there. That's fucking cool. Sort of. And then does, they, but even yeah. in the pilot, it does this weird thing of like the first see, scene, like uh, my girlfriend and I were looking at each other, like high fiving, because there's this point where uh, right at the start, the captain is like, as a compliment to her, he's like, Haha, you know, I don't even think of you as a woman. Uh, <laughs> and she like gives him this look that is so instantly familiar and we're like yeah. holy shit this is amazing this woman has had enough of this shit it's yes. fantastic That's so later cool. on in the episode it's entirely turned ambiguous because a psychic character reveals that she's had for the hots for the captain oh no uh, for every it turns out every woman on the ship has actually wanted to get with the captain oh god uh, but she's one of them and so that scene <laughs> retroactively becomes less awesome because it's less like her having enough of you know not having a time for that shit and it turns into it was like an insult like i a wish personal. you'd see me as a woman yeah oh, yeah fuck everything yeah it's <laughs> but that but you know within but for its time it's pretty rad and they yes. do some really really cool episodes yes yeah i i really love it um quite a bit i love all of the treks i'm one of those fucking people um but i i really Really love Voyager a lot more than anybody else on this uh, planet Earth here. Um, and I, I really like what they tried to do with it as well. Like, it is genuinely a show where the women characters are a thousand times more interesting than the dude characters. And the best dude characters are like... It's a hologram. It's like a hologram dude. Fucking 
pilot pretty boy who knows he's the least interesting person on the ship and it's fine. It's great. He's like, he's this like kind of goofy dude who's like kind of cute, but he doesn't act like he knows he's Mr. Hot Shit, which is like the best thing ever. It's like, dude, you can just be a dude and it doesn't have to be a weird thing. Ah, God. Also, I just, I really, really, really love Captain Janeway. And I know a lot of people don't think she's as good a captain. And I think there's a little bit of sexism there. I think there's a little bit of sexism in that analysis. Is she perfect? No. Did Kirk fuck up a lot? Yes. Did Picard even fuck up sometimes? And Picard is hailed as the paragon of all virtue. I'm not saying he's not the paragon of all virtue. However, man made some mistakes in his life. All right? So yeah, let 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 he who is driven a <laughs> Federation starship from whatever the hell quadrant she ended up in back <laughs> yeah. to Earth uh, cast the first stone. Exactly. Uh, I have a question. And she had a totally shit sandwich to eat. Here, yes, but, please uh, go on. Whatever. <laughs> so I've heard at least that um, one of the knocks against Janeway is that she's a really inconsistent character at times uh, and whipsaws uh you know sort of between extremes and sort of plays like you know in some ways seems to be playing into that stereotype of like as i can't have women in charge right they're unstable (laughs) but i have heard at least in some quarters that like there were also conscious like choices in that performance uh to play janeway as somebody uh who might actually have uh some undiagnosed like uh you know mental issues uh, and she, so she's you know a captain working through that and functioning in spite of that uh, i'm i'm curious if you've heard of that theory or or what you make of it i have i've definitely heard that and i and i think there might be some merit to it um partially because i think she's actually that good of an actress that she could pull it off. And maybe not everybody who's ever been on Star Trek is that <laughs> amazing of a performer. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's there's a few things here. First of all, there let's just lay it on the table. There are some dog shit episodes of Star Trek Voyager. There are some like stupider every- than fucking dirt, like dumb ass episodes of that show. Next so, yes. Gen has an unwatchable season. Oh, it sure does. Like, it, <laughs> like there are some dumb-ass episodes of any early season track. Again, the original series is a little weird because it's all mixed in. It's not well, really... Well, that one... Yeah. Does it get worse as it goes? A little that's, bit. That's there's some third season absolute bullshit, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it's... In my opinion, personally, I think it's a little bit more mixed in where every other track, you know, the 80s and 90s tracks all start on really awkward footing and then kind of get good as they go. Um, whereas the first one is kind of kind of good and a little bit weird all throughout the whole way. But yes, there are some fucking dog shit episodes. And yes, the characters are inconsistent in those dog shit episodes because they're not written well. They're not great. They are not good hours of mm. television. You know, that's just the truth. I think that's a large part of it, to be honest. And that is also a large part of like the really stupid things that the other captains have done. There is also the fact that, just saying, just laying this out here, Janeway had a much harder job than any of the other captains. Now, the other captains have a hard job. It is not easy to run the ship. Absolutely not. Cisco also has an extremely hard job. Not, not going to knock that. He has like a very difficult political position, especially as that show goes on. So maybe we'll just say Janeway and Cisco. Oh, isn't that shocking? The two people who aren't white guys both have the hardest mm, jobs. Actually, in fiction, not just... You know, in 
in the actual fiction of the show, not just sort of uh, within the sort of meta reading, you know, outside of the show. He has a hard job because he has an incredibly difficult political situation that he is constantly having to kind of deal with. She has a really hard job because her ship by a, you know, weird, basically magical being got hurtled to the other side of the universe and she has no contact with anybody else whatsoever. She's the only leader here and she has to keep everything copacetic in a place where nobody's ever learned of anything. This is like the entire show is a deep space mission where nobody has any contact with the Federation, no guidance, nothing to go off of. And a lot of the alien species out there are super hostile and she has to deal with the Borg like every day. Like, everybody else has a Borg episode, and it's like, oh, shit, this is the Borg episode. Fucking trauma is going to happen here. She has to deal with the Borg for, like, four entire seasons straight. Just Borg, 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 Borg. And she deals with the Borg and actually outsmarts the Borg. So, hey, who's doing a better job? So, that's my read on that. Wow, I'm so glad we got, like, clearly that was (laughs) inside you. Uh, And we needed to bring it out. People shit on her because she... You know, she did make some questionable decisions and did make some mistakes. However, when you have the hardest job, you have the furthest to fall. Okay? That's all I'm going to say. Janeway is fucking awesome. I would trust Janeway. I would trust Janeway. That's how I'm going to put it. She's smart. She's very, very, very good at sort of weaning both the best way to deal with something and also, like, the best way to, like, make it happen. She's also really funny and kind of sarcastic Ooh. and she slouches in her chair all the time and okay, doesn't have that on. like ramrod posture. She's just like, fuck you. Let dude. me throw something out there. Yeah. Yes. All right, let's, let me, let me just like, we're going to toss this up. We can see what we make of yeah. here. Yeah. A lot of these other Star Trek ca- like captains with, again, the possible exception to Cisco. Yes. Yes. They are great leaders. Capital L. Yeah. Janeway is captain as manager. Yes. Like she is, yes. she is dealing with, a series of like HR problems and keeping a Constantly. really fragile team together under difficult circumstances. Every day. Everyone else can be the grand, like, you know, they, they can be sort of the, uh, you know, guy on the, <clears throat> the equestrian, the equestrian statue yeah. of a Star Trek captain, right? Janeway isn't. She inherited a crew, half of, <laughs> half of whom hate each other. And had to make it work. And she has no guidance from anybody else anywhere in the universe. Oh, is that the other part? Like, is the is the ship kind of like a misfit yes. crew? The whole, oh, the whole thing is that it's a Maquis ship gets caught up with the Federation ship. She is in the oh, Federation ship. Okay. And it's the Maquis who are like these sort of rebels. They're kind yeah. of seen as like terrorists or rebels or, you know, freedom fighters. Kind of however you, however you pick them, basically. Um, and so, like, the whole first couple seasons, which, again, not great, but there is this sort of ongoing theme there of integrating this crew of two radically, radically different worldviews, basically, of oh, how to really do good. shit and how to make things work together. Everything she does is putting out a fire every day. Like, Picard anyway. puts out fires, for sure, but his whole ship is not on fire the whole fucking time. So, I gotta yeah. say, the... the uh the Elite Force shooter did not bring these themes out, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Like, sure I didn't, didn't realize that Voyager, like, had all this, like, managerial depth and sophistication. Because uh, for the most part, you were kind of in, like, Quake Deathmatch arenas with phasers. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like what it really needed was some kind of game that gets at the complexity of managing 
a whole hell of a lot of very complicated issues and complicated people and complicated personalities at once. I don't know if there's a genre that actually captures that, to be honest. <laughs> like, I don't know if any game has actually fully captured the complexity oh, of what a fucking well, headache it is to manage lots of very different kinds of people. This isn't like, what if Yeah. Uh, somebody made like a franchise manager type game for Star Trek? Oh my God. Like, I think it could be done because you understand the roles of that universe enough. Yeah. Uh, I think you could make to an interesting like tweak on that. Uh, it could be, could be interesting. Uh, I love yeah. this. I I actually think red shirt is uh it's not what that is at all. But thinking about this in this sort of context, red shirt is maybe the best Star Trek game, which is a uh, it, it was made by Me Too, me, yeah, uh, the tiniest shark, uh, and it is basically like a face almost like a Facebook simulator. It's like you know like a social media simulator where you're basically a Star Trek character. You're a you're a scrub. And you have to try to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak, to get better and better jobs and, like, be friendly with people and go to the holodeck and do all this other stuff. But, like, I love where you're going with this with, like, a franchise manager. Like, that kind of depth with, like, the numbers to support it and the kind of conflicts to support it. That would be so cool. I would really like that. I think um, Star Trek, as an underutilized franchise, like, to a degree, I think it's an... It's also an unusable franchise uh, in some ways. Like maybe this is why Red Shirt could make it work because what everyone wants from a Star Trek game is actually like four or five different games. Oh, yeah. uh, you want, uh, you know, you want the spaceship combat game, even though actually that's probably the smallest part of Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> across the board, uh, the space combat is not. That big a deal or that interesting? Those um, are only sweeps week episodes usually. <laughs> yeah, like BSG, uh, not BSG, but it's telling I made that slip because they're both Ronald D. Moore shows. Hey, you know it's cool. <laughs> uh, DS Nine is, I, I think, the only one that really had like these, uh, you know, convincingly uh, dramatic uh, fleet battles. Uh, God, do you remember the assault to retake DS Nine? Yes. Oh, oh my, my god. god, that was a hell of a thing. Uh, so good. Like just watching, uh, like birds of prey and uh, Federation warships just getting carved in half. Oh man, it was a hell, of a, hell of a good episode. Anyway, but the thing is, that's like, like if it were if a percentage of all Star Trek media ever made, uh, with the exception of maybe the novels, fleet battles are still like a tenth of a percent, probably yeah. of of what that is. But it's what a lot of games sort of revert to. Um, Away teams are an interesting format, except the problem there is I would not say that for the most part, the away team experience itself is very memorable in Star Trek. Like They encounter a lot of goofy shit that has like ramifications that are interesting. But for the most part, like again, I'm watching the original series right now. It's like they go down to a suspiciously similar like soundstage this that they were in last week it's supposedly outdoors but everyone is lit from four different sides so they've got like yeah. stage lights beating down on them uh and then 
you know, and then largely they're sort of stuck on one set, and then they're talking up the spaceship while they try to figure things out. Uh, it gets a little more dynamic in the DS9 era, the later yeah. Star Treks, but that's just because they just embrace the fact they're in Vancouver. Yep. <laughs> uh, and are like, man, you know what looks pretty alien is uh, temperate rainforest. Yeah. So we're just going to have another episode where Cisco and crew are just hanging out in the Pacific Northwest. It's it's sarcophagus seven. It's fine. It's great. It's <laughs> yeah. Oh, the pleasure planets look like the least fun places to hang out. Oh, definitely. They look like shitty like Marriotts. Like just right? bad, like shitty bad hotel. Riza does not look great to be honest. Like Riza kind of looks. Mm-hmm. Also, you no, can get like, that weird addictive game on Riza. I don't know, man. It's not worth it. I just would. It's like, I mean, this is the thing, right? Like. The Star Trek universe did not like what people did for fun there. Never actually seemed like fun. Like that was the like yeah, just the holodecks. Like the holodecks oh, themselves. I I would do many horrible things for a holodeck. Like it it that seemed but not fun. to do that stuff with them though. Like oh like, yeah yeah. Like can point. you imagine? I'm sorry, my vision of hell is like oh man, we discovered a holodeck. Fantastic. Time to do a lot of larping with your coworkers. <laughs> like, fuck that. <laughs> Oh, and by the way, every 10th time you do it, the LARP will turn real and try to kill you. Yup. Why did they never fix that fucking thing? Like, seriously, how many times did the holodeck either try to take (laughs) over the ship or try to kill everybody? Why did they never fix it? God, I love the holodeck creating, um, what was it, Moriarty? Yes. Uh, yes. Basically, like, realizes he's in the holodeck and tries to take over the ship. Anyway. And then he lives in a tiny computer chip forever, and now he has cool adventures. That's dark. What a fucking show. <laughs> God, what a great series, though. Oh, it, no. So, anyway, that's it for. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Idle Weekend, aka Star Trek Cool Hour Fun Times. <laughs> Yeah, we really need to start like writing up a run of show or something. God, we but, probably should. I mean, it's just uh, the th- the truth of the matter is, I and I'm sure you could do an entire podcast just about Star Trek and the episodes that we like <laughs> and hate. We're halfway and there. Danielle. We really basically already do. Uh, so instead of that, I will go to my other go to, and I will say, "Man, wouldn't it be great if there was a good Farscape game?" Oh. Farscape, uh, if you've never listened to the show before, or me ever, uh, Farscape's my favorite thing that's ever been made. And that's legitimate. Like, that, it really does stand above pretty much any other show or game or movie in terms of it, something that is just my favorite thing. Really awesome sci-fi show that subverts a lot of sci-fi tropes and plays with them, and it, it does a lot of cool and smart things, and also it's just very fun and sexy and good. Oh, it's really, really great. Um, and... Man, did it have some memorable, great characters that had amazing chemistry and amazing effects of sort of bouncing off each other. And was it ever a show about your expectations being pooped on all the time, (laughs) which is really good. There is a great line by Dargo in one episode who talks about how his life has been a continuing series of crushing disappointments. So let me have this moment, Uh, which is a a quote I think about. Not that my life has been such a thing. I have a very nice life. But it is a quote that I think about often in terms of, like, sci-fi characters. The and- <laughs> Dargo quote I think a lot about is, um, it's just such a beautiful exchange. It's such a great capper to season one. Um, 
so Crichton and Dargo are about to do some crazy risky stuff oh, to yeah. try to blow up the um uh whatever the directorate planet or whatever. The the, mil- the peacekeeper research planet. Oh yes. And they're basically going to try to detonate an entire planetary surface. And it could go wrong. And uh, and, it's pro- and it is going to go wrong. <laughs> and Crichton asks Dargo, it's like, you know, it's weird. We're probably about to die. And I feel more at peace than I've ever felt in my life. And Dargo just looks at him and rumbles, uh, fear accompanies the possibility of death. Calm shepherds at certainty. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. just starts laughing and is like, I'm going to miss hanging with you, man. Yes. And it was like, it so encapsulated what I loved about those characters. Yes. Um, so oh. anyway. So good. There was a Farscape game. There um, was. It was like a, it looks like it was like a Diablo clone or something. I think uh, it was a. Was it an it was RPG? Like, I think it was more RPG adventure. Okay. Uh, in, in some ways. because But yeah, I think it was basically like an episode of Farscape, but in video game form again a tough thing to adapt i could actually see it being a pretty like adaptable to the adventure game format since so many episodes were about like go to a bizarre setting and everything goes wrong <laughs> fake your way through it yeah <laughs> fake your way through it also everything goes wrong your plan goes to shit in two seconds and deal with it yeah i could see oh god all right stereotype but i could see a good immersive sim i was just thinking that holy <laughs> shit i was just thinking that yes. I, like, like, a, like oh chiana can like try to lie her way through things or aaron yes. could like shoot her way through things or Crichton could try to hack through something of course he would fuck up but he would probably think of something clever and it's you know like there could be you could make those into mechanics like it, danielle literally uh, yeah when you were saying that i was thinking about um Uh, the episode where they have to do the heist and they're trying to figure out how to like rip off this uh, crime lord and they can't crack the case so they call in the version of (laughs) of Scorpius the villain of the show that the main character keeps in his head and he like helps set them up to do like the perfect crime it turns this Ocean's Eleven type thing and I was thinking like my God, what if you did like a Hitman style game that's like multiplayer and you have to like use these characters and their abilities to like pull off these capers oh around God. the uh, Farscape universe? That'd be a great freaking show. It would be an immersive sim and oh it would work. Oh my God, it would be so good. Somebody, Arcane. Hey, Arcane. You want to you wanna make that? Hey, you have, you have a history now uh, with taking a, a license, a very like off kilter and weird license and making something wonderful Beautiful. and great that out of it. Nobody buys. <laughs> You're oh, the perfect match for Farscape. I know. <laughs> oh God, it's, that's a little too perfect and very depressing. <laughs> look, we don't know. Look, we don't know what Bethesda's finances are. We don't know what how Arcane's games are selling. Uh, if it were doing that badly, could we have possibly gotten Death of the Outsider? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. But, but we have it. Death of the Outsider is great, it, by the way. Should, yeah, we should, yeah, we should, we should uh, we'll time out here. Yes, <laughs> uh, you've been playing it. I have, and it's wonderful. I mean, so far, obviously, I'm, I'm only a couple hours in. I streamed a little of it yesterday um, on our stream on Waypoint, and it is so fucking good. It is uh, you are starring uh, Billy Lurk, who also also known AKA Megan. Yep. Uh, who is on the on the ship? She's the captain of the Dreadful Whale in the second game, and I'm pretty sure she's in a DLC from the first game. I didn't actually. Play oh yeah, the no, DLC. she's introduced as um, okay. Dowd's right hand woman. Yes, 
in Knife of Dunwall, and the yeah, she's unforgettably cool in that, and yeah. it's pretty uh, heartrending when you sort of realize that she's betrayed you, and you sort of have to figure out what you're gonna do with her uh, at the end. Yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah, I've God, I love those games so much. I, I still need to go back one day and play the DLC for the first game. But yeah, so you're playing as her, and. Your very first mission, again, I'm sort of in the first mission because, of course, I'm doing the thing where I want to find every bone charm and look at every little thing and see everything that's possible because that's what's fun about immersive sims. You can try everything 10 different ways and figure things out. Um, You have to go and sort of rescue Dad because he has been, he's like imprisoned in this weird boxing gym. Yes, I know. It's amazing. Uh, That's being held by this like bizarre cult somewhere in Karnaka. And they're, it's a whole bunch of cool witches and like warlock people who are, they all have oh, a boxing wait, whoa, whoa. gym. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and you have to sort of get him out. So he is being semi-controlled and sort of like he's he has like it's like a weird force field around him, basically. Uh, and he he's fighting for, you know, prize money, basically. And he he sure is the star of the show, and people are coming from miles around to watch him and his weird magic, basically, in these boxing matches. Uh, so you have to free him from this crazy boxing gym where there's a bunch of witches and that's the whole first mission and it's really fun. Uh, there's a very cool ability that you start right off the bat with where you can read rats' minds. You can just go no. up to some rats. Oh, it's so good and they're what so creepy. What do the rats creepy. think? Oh, they always think about murder. They think about what? killing things, eating flesh, delicious blood. They, they're they like little fucked up vampires. Fucking but also the they say scary things too, like about how... You know, the hounds try to eat them, and it's like, oh, yeah, death, sadness, pain. And it's it's very, it's very creepy and great. Um, this is kind of like a really great Halloween game, I think. Yeah. I mean, these games have always been kind of creepy and freaky and witchcraft and all sorts of stuff is going on. But this is like kind of perfectly timed for Halloween season. I think it's actually out uh, this weekend or yesterday, like as of when you're or... listening to this. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I think... Uh, yes, yes, something like that. Uh, I really, really like it quite a bit, and it's a standalone game, which I was actually sort of shocked to find out. I thought for some reason it was going to be DLC, but no, it's a, it's like a $30 standalone game, so... It's what they did last time, but yeah. Uh, it wasn't standalone last time. I think both those uh, expansions came out uh, as DLC, so yeah. it is interesting that they went the uh, standalone route. Maybe they need money? I don't know. Uh, well, it's or pretty maybe, good. It's maybe pretty they just want to share the bounty that is, that is Dishonored, which is doing great, and I they're paving so. the way to Dishonored Three and making uh making ten more immersive Sims. Holy shit! That would yeah, be pr- the coolest pray thing. Two, uh, yeah, yeah hell great. yeah. Pray two would be pretty fucking cool. Farscape, Farscape, the immersive <laughs> Sim that's coming out by Arcane. Yeah. You know that sounds pretty good. <laughs> uh, Voyager crew manager 20, 2019 Oh, they're really they're stepping um, out. They're really yeah. branching out. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be wild. Uh, so my, I guess my fear is that like because of this context and because we've sort of been um, we've just had the sinking feeling that our favorite games the last like year or two are not doing great uh, yeah. commercially. Um, I guess my fear was that this one might feel a little bit like uh, discount dishonored, which Knife of Dunwall kind of did. It recycled okay. an entire level. Uh, okay. At one point, so like, I guess I was a little concerned that it would sort of be doing something like that. It does feel like more of the same mechanically, at least from certain points of view. But it does not feel more of the same aesthetically, at least thus far. Again, I'm I'm only kind of in the first main mission at this point. But uh, 
you, as Billy, you don't have the same powers as Corvo or uh, right. Elizabeth, right? Mm-mm. Not saying the right thing. Uh, Emily. Emily, sorry. God, that's why. Yep. Elizabeth, somebody else. Um, in fact, I don't really have many powers at all right now. I can pretty much talk to rats and otherwise sneak around. Uh, I'm assuming I'm going in to the game. get more things. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it, it, it does not feel like the same thing in terms of what you're actually kind of doing moment to moment. It does feel like, yeah, this is the same universe. These are the same general. I'm sure there are some art assets that have been recycled. But if, if, they've, if they have been recycled, it's been done in a pretty artful way. This doesn't feel like a place I have been to before. Um, it, it looks like the same kind of game, but it feels very much to me, and this is a compliment, uh, like Uncharted Lost Legacy uh, last month, where it's like, oh yeah, this is a whole, everything about this, you know, sort of mechanically speaking and the way things generally look, it does feel like the game it probably was developed as DLC for, but everything does look different and it plays slightly differently because you, you don't have, you know, the same specific powers. Uh, and that game was awesome too. So, you know, throwing that one out there, but yeah, I super support this idea. If you make a big game that is, has a massive budget and you want to make a smaller game that has, you know, some of those assets and some of those mechanics and some of these things that you kind of can reuse, but in a actual new way, in a, you know, artful way, I suppose, artfully repurposing something, I am all in favor of it. I mean, more Dishonored is a wonderful, wonderful thing, I think. Especially, and more Billy Lurk is a wonderful, wonderful thing, so. Hell yeah. Cool, I am super excited. I can't wait to uh, to start it. <sighs> yeah, I I want to play more. I'm, there's several games I've been playing lately that I'm just like, I just want to play well, more. Yeah. The good news is, though, you're going to be on vacation in Scotland, which inspired a lot, of, was basically the source of about half the reference art for Dishonored. There you go. So I'm going to be there with the you, castles you and fog. Dishonored uh, tour. <laughs> oh, good. Multimedia experience. I like, I like the sound of that. That'll be fun. Um, I think we should probably move on since. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it was a pretty comprehensive discussion. I feel, I feel of, good uh, about it. Franchises. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I feel good. Uh, we, we really nailed it, and uh, we'll, never, <laughs> we'll never revisit that topic again. And except for every uh, other cause, day. Cause, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, sci fi is great, okay? Good sci-fi is great. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think with that, let's move into our weekend correspondence. We've got some letters. We thank you for your letters. Oh, boy. We've got a lot of letters. All right. It's been a little bit. It's been, you know, a lot of shit's going on lately in life. Um, (laughs) Our first letter is from Patrick, and I don't think it's from Patrick Klepik, but uh, Patrick. And Patrick writes, these thoughts have been in my head for a while, but what really made me think about it more deeply was the suicide of Chester Bennington. After all, despite the immense popularity of Linkin Park, the musical sensibility of my friends often caused me throughout the years to make jokes about crawling in my skin. Reading about his his history and the mockery I expressed was what was likely deeply felt things expressed in a very public way. I thought about the way in which I talk about artists and other public figures and considered whether it was ever good or justified. This was amplified because I cannot think of specific examples off the top of my head. I know for sure that people who are often careful and measured in their criticism can veer into outright mockery when the target is easy enough. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about mocking those who are clearly doing things that most people would consider harmful. I'm talking about people in the public eye uh, who, through their ridiculous personas, say Guy Fieri, or through their ubiquitous presence, say the Kardashians, are easy targets of ridicule and mockery. I'd like to hear your thoughts on mockery's place in modern criticism. Does mockery have a place there, Patrick? 
<sighs> I think I used to be more guilty of this than I am, but I am still guilty of it. I will yeah. say that. I think I've gotten somewhat better over the years, but not I'm not 100% there. I will still participate in in this sort of mockery and I'm not proud of it. I I don't think uh, and again, of course, uh, saying what Patrick is saying, I yes, some people should be mocked. People who espouse hatred and bullshit and Donald Trump should be mocked. And, you know, people who do things that are harmful. I, I think mockery is is perfectly acceptable uh, in that. Uh, you know, it seems like Patrick is definitely making that exception here. But I want to be clear about that. Uh, for sure, there are things that, that deserve to be mocked. And then there are things like what he's talking about, like things that are maybe too sincere or a little wacky or whatever, uh, that maybe don't deserve the kind of vitriol that uh, we often, I'll say we in the media, I think a lot of us are pretty snarky on Twitter sometimes and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's really a great place for that, uh, for someone who isn't harming anyone or isn't, you know, actively causing some sort of horrible distress to others basically i don't i don't think it's super necessary yeah i um <laughs> i don't know where i come down on this because i'm i have this fear that a lot of my answers basically are going to work their way back to shouldn't but damn it i like doing it too much so continue <laughs> to be shitty which is you know why people get defensive and continue to like exhibit problematic behaviors uh so i don't really want to be that sort of person that said, um, <clears throat> it's tough because, like, I've definitely been an asshole about Linkin Park in particular. Sure. Uh, more so probably, you know, Nickelback because they're the easier target and, uh, you know, probably the, the even lesser band. But, you know, if I really given it a fair shot, I think, I think in some ways... <sighs> Where it gets really challenging is when something becomes really ubiquitous. Yeah. What you're mocking, what it feels like you're mocking is not just the art or the artist, but just all the silliness around it. Uh, and that can make it feel like, uh, and, and indeed it, it, it does make it uh, you know, less personal, less, uh, less directed. Where it gets... Sticky is that there is a human e human being on the other end of all this. There are yeah. there are people on the other end of all this, uh, and that I do uh, struggle with. But at the same time, I do feel like pretty um, a pretty ironclad aspect of creative work and and artistry is that when you do put something out there, you open yourself to criticism in all forms. Um, and so to an extent, I do kind of have this, I, I, you know, it's to an extent, I, I think people have volunteered themselves for that relationship of for good and for bad. Um, I think what's really terrifying is that that agreement used to have a narrower scope than it does in the age of the internet. Yeah. Um, it's one thing when somebody could write a really poisonous review of you uh, in a broadsheet or something. Yeah. Uh, but it's quite another when they can like find your email address or like, you, you know, your Twitter or just 
Um, or if you're a big enough star, they will just start writing really like personal, personally nasty things, uh, maybe in high profile places and it becomes inescapable. Um, <clears throat> so I don't, I, the answer I guess that I'm coming around to is I just, I don't know. Um, you know, a few weeks ago we, we did a show of Waypoint Radio where we talked about the new Taylor Swift single. Sure did. A lot and, of angry letters on that one. <clears throat> sure were. Yeah. And some of the tenor of that was also that we weren't just mocking uh, Taylor Swift, but also uh, some of her fans who did like uh, the music. Yeah. That we were sort of mocking their taste and their and by extension we're sort of denigrating uh, them. And that's another thing that I just, I don't have great answers for that uh, right now because it's something I'm still, I'm, I'm still sitting with. Um I think I, oh sorry go ahead. Good no good no actually go on cuz I'm I'm stumbling through this. It's so, okay. Uh, I jump in. Something that 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 just brought to mind <clears throat> is that I think there's a hugely important distinction between public versus private mockery of something. <laughs> um you know I could privately think something is stupid or annoying or whatever and I could talk to my girlfriend about it or my close friends, you know, not be on the internet uh, talking about it, not talk about it on a podcast. Not, you know, there, there's definitely the part of this that makes me cringe the most when I do it. And when I see this instinct in, in other people is the idea of like wanting to score points with other people, like publicly performing this like yeah. snarky persona of like, look at how stupid this is. Oh my God, blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of thing. That's where I start to feel like, no, this really sucks. This is a shitty behavior and I shouldn't do that. And I know I do it and I admit it that like, yeah, there are times I super do that and I jump on these, this poisonous little bandwagon and I go along with it and that's not a great thing to do, I don't think. I think that privately, genuinely privately, not on Twitter, but like actually in your private life, you're, you're super allowed to gripe about things that you think are, are pretty stupid. And people that maybe you don't like. And that's that's one thing. Uh, but especially once you have anything, anything of a platform, even a pretty small one in the scheme of things like like I have, um, that, that's completely different. Y- you need to think about what you say a little bit more. Again, a thing I need to work on. But uh, yeah, I, I also like just honestly... It's something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of just how toxic are the discourse. I know, I know, whatever. But the way we talk about politics and the way we talk about each other in our country and our culture is really toxic and really horrifying and really scary in a lot of ways. And I think some of it comes down to just being a mean asshole and, and not being able to kind of see outside of your own worldview a little bit. Uh, and I, I don't love that. I, I don't love how mockery is essentially how part a portion of how our current president got elected by by mocking the other by mocking other people by calling everybody a loser by being a dick basically and that really 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 appealed to a small but significant percentage of people um that's really horrible and Maybe, maybe we can use it as something of a wake up call to be like, maybe, maybe we should not be assholes. Maybe being a performative asshole is actually a really terrible thing and bad things have come out of it. And I'm not making like a one to one suggestion that, you know, if you made fun of Taylor Swift, that that got Trump elected. No, it's just some of it is part of the same disease, I think. 
uh, and that's worth <laughs> maybe being mindful about. Yeah, um, I return a lot to the thing that um, Craig Ferguson did a monologue years ago about uh, Britney Spears. They have probably mentioned this on the show before, uh, but it's basically him reflecting on the jokes he'd been making around that time uh, where Britney Spears has been going through a variety of, of uh, issues uh, re- relating to mental health and, yeah. uh, you know, having, having a child. Um, and he's sort of reflecting in the monologue about the jokes he's making about that. And it's this really fascinating thing because, like, the audience keeps waiting for this to turn into a bit. Yeah. And he keeps shutting them down, being like, no, this I am deadly serious. And he ends up telling the story about like his own history with substance abuse and uh, you know, a very near miss he had with uh, you know, taking his own life. And his his sort of conclusion at the end was that, you know, he'd sort of been thinking about his work and what his comedy was turning into, and he he was afraid that it was just making him mean and making his audience mean that like indulging in these jokes was having like a staining effect on the people telling them and the people laughing at them, yeah. uh, which is, I think something that you do have to think about, uh, you know, and this is, and, and I, and I think this applies to everyone. This is not just if you have a platform, like yeah. it's anything you consume, anything you, you, you have an emotional reaction to, or, or, or you find mirth in it is worth at least, you know, being mindful of what you're reacting to and some of the subtext of what you're reacting to and what that says. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's where I come down on it. I think mockery for mockery's sake uh, is pretty poisonous. The 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 catch is just some things are just too deliciously silly not to mock right like i mean guy fieri like he might be a blast to hang out with he might be really cool and by all accounts uh he actually is a a, a very kind and, and, and generous person but it's also really hard not to just find something hysterical uh about the performance that is guy fieri right yeah the, and that the, feels that feels different to me and again maybe this is me being an asshole but like that feels different to me kind of being laughing and like it seems like he's in on the joke i guess is what i'm trying to say like he he kind of knows he's being wacky and funny and like guy fieri you know guy fieri but what if on the inside guy fieri is crying like that's that's the thing right right yeah yeah what if guy fieri like sees all this stuff he sees like he, he sees our tweets and is just like and he's really upset I just wanted to share with you that patty melt I really loved. Oh, <laughs> See, that makes me like, bro, really it's a sad. Patty melt. Yeah. I don't, I don't want him to cry. <laughs> like I want, I want everybody in the damn world to live their best life. You know. Ugh. So anyway, where we've ended up with is uh, <laughs> ugh, giving, well, a lot, giving us a lot to think about, well, Patrick. Mock, mock politicians. You're allowed to do that. <laughs> I mean, not not just politics. Mock people who are being but, assholes. That is, you are allowed Marco to Rio mock. Rubio is crying on the inside. I just, look, fucking good. Like that is a different thing. That is a very different thing from somebody putting their art out there. Somebody who yeah. is actively no, trying to hurt people. I get like, I'm like, no, your feelings deserve to be hurt. 
nobody else's deal. <laughs> I feel like the mean kindergarten teacher is something like, no, you can have your feelings hurt. Everybody yeah, else play with your crayons. Works. That's not how kindergarten works. Danielle did oh, not teach not? kindergarten. Oh, you're I thought not. that's, I thought that's <laughs> how it worked. <laughs> no, you're not like, you're not like, uh, you know, the sword of justice for the classroom. That's, that's not what you're supposed to do, sadly. <laughs> You're not supposed to be like, no, this child is bad and they shall feel bad. No, they did a bad thing. Shame exists for a reason. And people who are trying to hurt other people deserve to feel shame. I mean, we do live in an era that's like kind of killing the idea of shame, which is proving pretty dangerous as well. Yeah, a little bad. uh, Anyway, uh, our our next email (laughs) is uh, from Paul from Oslo. And... uh, but something here is kind of surprising. I'm going to have to, um, have to ask you about this. Anyway, okay, okay. Uh, Paul says, I was listening to your discussion about misrepresentation and stereotypes in media, and I was immediately reminded of how I was irritated by this when I watched Wonder Woman. Just some background. I am German but live in Norway, and believe it or not, the first thing you hear from anybody in the English-speaking world that finds out you are German is a Nazi joke. Oh, no. It's okay. I get it. I also don't think of it as a particular problem, but it gets old pretty fast. Now, there I was, enjoying a perfect and cool Wonder Woman movie (laughs) with a kick-ass Wonder Woman when suddenly Nazis arrive on the scene, which gives me pause because the time frame is clearly World War I. (laughs) And when I say there are Nazis, all the soldiers are are mindless attack machines and all characters that have any agency at all are evil supervillains and crazy scientists working in a labor camp and doing medical experiments on prisoners. It also looks in the movie as if the Germans are using weapons of mass destruction on the Brits who are who just are brave and fight back with regular guns. Now, I get that a superhero movie doesn't have to be historically accurate or show both sides of the coin, but I find it bad enough that 90% of all German characters that exist in media are Nazis. Do we really need to make Nazis out of World War I Germans as well? Later, the film partially redeems this by throwing in a scene that shows German generals that want to surrender. But it also paints the peace movement in Britain as the real warmongers, <laughs> which is just weird. It also basically frees the German side of any guilt in anything because Ares has superpowers that make them evil, and I was told in school that assuming evil people are just evil and have no redeeming qualities was part of the reason the Nazis gained power so fast. Sorry for being such a whiner in this email, it just really bugged me, and I wonder if Rob, who seems to have a broad historical knowledge, will tell me how wrong I am or agree with me. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's Paul. Uh, first, Danielle, wait a second. Yeah. Wonder Woman... Does a both sides thing with the British Peace Party as being evil? Not exactly. They're just seen as being super sexist and stodgy and willing to, like, give up soldiers for, you know. Like, they're seen as, like, a very... They're willing to do very dishonorable things for peace, basically, in the movie. And she gets pretty pissed about this. And also in the movie, she's very naive at this point still. Uh, but her heart is always in the right place. She's got a heart of gold. Of course she does. And she's like, why, how would you, how do you call yourself a warrior? You know, if you, if you wouldn't be willing to step out on the field and die for your soldiers. It's one of those. So they're not seen as the real warmongers. It's more that they're seen as cold, kind of calculating assholes who have no honor. Uh, at least that's how I read that scene. That's how it seemed to me. Also, Ares was posing as one of the British peace movement guys. So 
you know, that I Aries. guess you could see that as well. This I is mean, so, starting to sound very Percy Jackson, to be honest. <laughs> a little bit, you know, it's, you know, um, there's also the fact that the movie does kind of have its cake uh, and eat it too. That's the term, right? Um, because it does have a scene where, you know, she believe she fully believes it's Aries the whole time. She's like, no, it's Aries being an asshole. It's Aries being an asshole. And the Steve, Steve character, the boyfriend character, Steve Trevor, is like a has a moment where he's like, no, there's no such thing as evil. Everybody's a little bit evil. It's fucked up. It's complicated. Blah blah blah. So we have that scene where the movie is like acknowledging, yes, life is a lot more complicated than good and evil. And then it gets to have a cool battle at the end between good and evil. So you know, it kind of throws that under the table a little bit. Um, so those are those particular points. Uh, and, yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, no. I, Comic books, movies, uh, it, it is kind of frustrating that, like, they have trouble working in the in the moral nuance, uh, which is <laughs> frustrating because a lot of times the source material does. Like, yeah. the source material, like, handles that stuff with a plum in a lot of cases. And then the movie's sort of, like, head fake in that direction, but then they're like, okay, anyway, look, how can we solve this with a big punch-up? Right. And usually the answer is, well, someone's got to be real bad and someone's got to be real good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, so as far as this, this treatment of the history goes, uh, so I think one thing that surprised me, a few years ago I read, um, this book called Vienna Blood, uh, which is, uh, God, let's see. It's, so it's a series, yes, the, the Max Lieberman series, uh, it's, by Frank Tallis, and the first book, at least, was a delight. The second one I thought was kind of shitty, but the reason I thought the second one was kind of shitty, it is a period uh, mystery series set in uh, turn-of-the-century Vienna uh, through the eyes of a Jewish psychologist in practicing in, in Vienna, and it's sort of in this interesting time period where, like, medicine is becoming rapidly much more professionalized. There's a lot of progress. Uh, psychology and psychiatry are, like, in their infancy. Um, and, you know, well, Freud's a, a character on the margins hmm. of this. And this and the, the main character is sort of a disciple of Freud. Uh, by the way, there's a pretty brutal biography of uh, Freud that just came out uh, that pretty much portrays him as a complete charlatan fraud. But... <laughs> That's another matter. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so in the second book, there's the, the second book starts uh, it, it starts treating in some really ugly stereotypes of mystery series. Like the first book was a pretty good whodunit. The second book is someone's brutally slaughtering hookers throughout Vienna, Uh-oh. and it's like you want some you want some vividly rendered crime scenes with like tons of description about the way a human body can be destroyed. Boy, here we go. Uh, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is a little gross. And it's, uh, it, it's got a little bit of that, like, you know, Jack the Ripper fetishizing uh, yeah. that, that you find in the genre. But then at like the second crime scene, there's a swastika on the, uh, on the wall and it's like, oh shit, what's going on? And at the time, I was thinking, well, this is preposterous. Like, like, no, there's no Nazis in, like, 1898, 1901, like, Austria. That's, like, no. This is just, you're, you're really reaching now. You're trying to be like, okay, so, like, killing, like, a hundred hookers doesn't make these characters bad enough. Uh, how can we really, oh, they're Nazis while they do it. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I thought this was completely bogus. Um, 
And then it turns out that the Nazi movement actually starts way sooner than you think. Um, and it does sort of start in Austria well before World War I uh, as a sort of coterie of uh, nobles and officers started to coalesce around uh, some really like BS, uh, like faux orientalist philosophy. Yeah, a bunch of and mystical yeah. things. And yeah, I, sorry, you know this much better than I. I'm I don't. Just groping like the, towards it. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, the book was still not great. Like, it's still, it's still a book kind of fetishizing, uh, you know, violence against sex workers. But at least, like, the thing that I thought made it truly, like, ridiculous turned out not to be so this idea that you could have um you know nazis running around in world war one and wonder one doesn't seem quite as laughable but on the other hand it it does sound pretty much like they basically turned them into you know dudes running concentration camps um which isn't really what was going on at that time yeah it's <clears> also <sighs> yeah I, and everybody used chemical weapons. Like, God damn, did everybody use chemical weapons? They sure war. did. Some of the, one of the most interesting, um, not to get too excited about Hardcore History, that podcast, because it, it has issues too, but one of the most interesting episodes ever for me of Hardcore History was when uh, the host, Dan, Dan something, Dan Harlan, Howerman, something like that. Uh, not Reichert, though. Does not Dan Reichert. This is not a Dan Reichert podcast. Let's be Carlin. Sorry. Thank Dan you. Carlin. Um, Dan Carlin goes into the legal gymnastics that every country went through to sort of justify using chemical weapons. The, oh, if it came from a can, I, I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it was as stupid and arbitrary as, oh, if it came from a canister, it's okay. Uh, that's legally defensible, but not, you know, some other method of it did the same fucking thing if it came from a canister or not. It's just that's the the actual like just absolute ridiculous, arbitrary sort of mental gymnastics that went into. Oh, yeah, this is OK. This is an OK weapon of mass destruction uh, or, or sorry, a chemical weapon, you know, new kind yeah. of weapon uh, that made a lot of things make a lot of sense to me about World War One. So. Cool aside, there. That's all. I. That's all yeah. I have uh, regarding yeah. history. So it sounds like its treatment of uh, the historical context is not great, and no. uh, does fall back on some lazy tropes about uh, the the German way of war. Yes. Um. I think that's fair to say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Uh. Well, thank you, also, Paul. Okay. Um. Got another question here. Uh, this is an anonymous question, I believe. Nope, it's uh, our buddy. Oh, it's all the same. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I no, misread there's, a, there's a sign off and then there's a long postscript. Uh, John, right. work on your formatting. Sorry, sorry. Thank you, John. But thank you, John, for sticking with us. I appreciate it. So, John, good friend of the, friend of, I would say a friend of our mailbag. That's that's what yeah. John is. <laughs> uh, greetings, R and D. With the recent talk about wrestling, fighting games, packs, and a few other topics with strong culture slash uh, slash community. It raises a tangential question to separating the artist from the art. Has the surrounding society impacted the enjoyment of an experience for you, positive or negative? For a personal example, as a youth, I was driven away from miniatures wargaming due to non-gregarious grognards putting up walls for new players to earn the right to play. Now I just feel old when I don't understand the current pop culture zeitgeist, but it does impact my ability to join in emerging subcultures. John Rennish. Oh, I'm trying to think of a good personal example because I know this has super happened to me. Uh, 
at times. There have definitely been things where I've been like, no, something, something about the community or culture just pushed me away from things uh, at times in life. I also just want to uh, congratulate John on my new favorite phrase, non-gregarious grognards. That's really That's a good phrase. Good. That's really good. Um, do you have one? I, I might, we might have to come back to me because I know there have been things in my life that, that's fit yeah, this I mean, well, but. Wargaming definitely, uh, has those elements. Um, a, a lot of, and like, even my wargaming friends have like had these issues where like, sometimes you just want to play a war game, but then there's some people who just like, got to make it in this weird freaking thing. Um, yeah, and like just take it way too seriously, or like uh, get way too personal about it. So there's there's a lot of that. You encounter that that a lot in uh, in wargaming. Um, I don't know. It's. I mean, we work in games. We work yeah. in nerd culture. <laughs> like if if you know if your ambivalence is not increasing by the month uh, about <laughs> that space, uh, then I don't know what to tell you. But like. I I think, you know, and I, I return to it a lot. I think about um, Simon Pegg's essay on uh, <laughs> nerd culture as a late capitalist conspiracy huh, uh, yes. to uh, sort of farm the enthusiasm uh, of, of an entire generation and to commodify uh, art and enjoyment, uh, which I think is a really insightful view on the way entertainment is created now. But I think the, the thing, the other thing he really hits on is that it's all based on this premise of, you know, it's not just that you enjoy these works is that you are somehow like, they are a part of you in a way that like other art is not right. You're, you're not just like, nobody is like, Oh man, I'm big in the novels. What a kooky <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah. But they do say that about like, nerd culture and it's and it's a strange thing um and so so what what i think a lot of what i what i think about a lot you know starting from that that letter is that we, we work in a space that to an extent the reason we have we all have jobs is that people are really enthusiastic about this stuff and, and really invested and passionate about it but then on the other hand is we work in a space that part of the business model is also about feels like it's about twisting people's relationship Mm -hmm. uh, to art and to, to creative output in a way that is very unhealthy. And so that's something that uh, I, I struggle with a lot. And I struggle with it a lot around uh, convention season uh, because a lot of conventions are entirely predicated on that weird like mob mentality of our enthusiasm for this like eclectic shared series of adjacent pursuits <laughs> somehow others us and we're going to aggressively embrace and defend that. Yeah. I think that's very, very well said. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of ambivalence about going to a lot of these things uh, for many reasons, certainly. Um, the only sort of general feeling that, that I could, uh, that I could kind of conjure up for, for this. And it, it's sort of a weird thing because it's, it's not really about just, uh, the subculture of something, but also just sort of the major thing in culture. Uh, I, I just started wrestling for real in January, not for real. I'm not doing it competitively yet, but 
and it's something I was always interested in when I was younger, uh, but girls did not wrestle when I was younger. It was just not a thing that happened. And it was always sort of a sport I was interested in, even though they wore the dorky singlets. Um, <laughs> I, I always was kind of like, that looks like fun. That looks like a good time, but never felt that I could do it or could ever look normal doing it or be normal doing it or be normal for wanting to do it. So there's a lot of weird things and pressures in sort of traditionally masculine sports that I've experienced in life. And I'm really glad that both there have been at least some baby steps in the right direction for women who do combat sports. And also that I've just gotten older and give less of a shit what it looks like when I do things. So I guess that's mine, but it's not, that's not exactly like a specific subculture, but it's what I got, I guess for this, this question. Oh, is that the end of our letters? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, John. That was a very, very good question. Uh, I will keep thinking about it as well, because I'm pretty sure this, this has happened in a more gaming-specific context, but I can't drudge it up at the moment. So instead, we're going to move right on to our weekend projects. Rob, are you watching or listening to or, or you know, into anything especially awesome right now? Uh, yeah, I am. I just finished a really good uh, comic series. Ooh called The Sheriff of Babylon. Ooh. Uh, and it's written by Tom King and uh, illustrated by Mitch Gerrits. And so a little context. Um, I have recently discovered entirely by accident that Tom King has written like all the comics I love or have loved <laughs> in the last couple of years. Because uh, like, look, I am sometimes bad about paying close attention to the comics I'm reading and who wrote them. Uh, and so when I've been going on about like, oh man, there's this incredible run of uh, comics around Dick Grayson called Grayson, uh, where he's a spy and it's amazing. That was Tom King. Uh, that Vision series uh, that I was going on and on about last year uh, was Tom King. Um, wow. And the other thing I didn't realize about Tom King is that he was a uh, he was an intelligence officer for the United States. Uh, during Iraq, uh, during the invasion of Iraq, and he was deployed over there. Uh, well, uh, posted over there, and uh, I think I think he was with CIA, and he wrote a comic, uh, not really based on his experiences, but kind of condensing. It's it's like a snapshot of Iraq in the wake of the American invasion uh, in like 2004. Okay. And the Sheriff of Babylon uh, sort of unfolds like a triptych uh, following three characters. Uh, there is an American cop who is training the new Iraqi police force, or trying to. There is a burned out, disillusioned uh, ex-Iraqi police officer, uh, and actually ex-secret police officer, hmm. And then there is uh, sort of a an Iraqi exile, uh, sort of an Ahmad Chalabi uh, type figure, but she's this very idealistic and capable woman uh, who is sort of uh, the most important, like the big political wheel uh, among among the refugees. And it brings all these threads together, but it's, it's, it starts out as a murder mystery. Uh, one of the police training recruits turns up dead. And uh, the American cop just can't quite let it go. And these other characters get pulled into it. Uh, but <clears throat> what's really impressive about it, in addition to just being 
inc- like it's incredible writing and incredibly uh, vivid portrait of uh, Iraq. I've read some reviews of it uh, by people who were deployed over there, and they were talking about like one thing to make a point of is that apparently it's incredibly detailed. Uh, that there's not really a foot put wrong when it comes to like what the green zone looked like and uh, what an Iraqi street looks like. But the other great thing is it it turns into a really smart distillation of everything that was misguided and fucked up about the American invasion and occupation of Iraq. Um, and it, it leads to one of the best closing lines I've ever seen in a, in a comic. Um, and also turns into the, the one, okay. The one thing I'll say about where the plot goes, it starts as a murder mystery. It turns into a hunt for a mastermind who's behind a wave of terror attacks in Baghdad. And if you know anything about like the reality of the situation, you know, masterminds were often talked about, but notoriously hard to actually come by in the wild. Yeah. And this book sort of tackles that as well. Uh, and so it's it's really incredible. Um, Danielle, it's it's like if the Americans were a comic. Oh, my God. I mean, you, you honestly had me with this is an actual, legit, uh, well-made take, thoughtful take on this fucked up and horrible time that... I constantly would like to know more of because it's it, it's a, it's one of those weird periods of time where I was a very young adult when this happened. I was I think this is set in 2003, so it's like really early days with that. I was I was 19. So I was just beginning to become politically aware and I have a weird fascination with that time period uh because I was starting to understand things at that point basically or starting to really actually understand things. And I always constantly want to know more about how we got into this fucking mess and how these things happened and how it impacts what's going on today. And of course, we now have things like, oh, yeah, you know, my son is now serving in the same war I served in. We have those kinds of things going on now, which is sad and fucked up. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to read this <laughs> even before you told me that. And then when you told me that, I've sold, done, ordering it on Amazon. Like, this is this sounds amazing. Um Rob, I, I have a comic too, but uh, mine is not not the same as yours. Uh-oh. Mine is. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a little story, okay? I like sci-fi, okay? Uh, we all know this. I, you know, occasionally, especially since I now have an anime life coach and a manga life coach, I, I have occasionally been interested in the 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 more risque elements of the of the uh, manga and anime world and uh i was at uh friend of the show uh amanda amanda's house once uh this was actually a little while ago i hadn't gotten to this uh particular series uh until like very recently uh but a few months ago i was there and i was looking on her shelf and i saw this comic called starfighter and i was like immediately drawn to it i i immediately picked it up and uh took took a quick spin uh took a little look at it and and she graciously uh, procured a copy for me, even, uh, of Starfighter. I've been really, really enjoying it. It is a sexy times, 18 plus, man for man, hot and heavy action comic about uh, two sexy guys with long hair. Well, I guess one of them has longer hair than the other one. 
uh, who also happen to be basically Battlestar Galactica pilots, uh, which is amazing and great. Wait, hold on. Yeah, no, this, is, this is a real thing. Hold on. This is so good. No, 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 I no, love no, it no. so much. No, yeah, we yes. got to hit the brakes. No, we wait, what? Brakes here. what? Why? I just have a question. Okay. Is there like a really heavy, like sort of semi-non-consensual, like BDSM aspect in this comic? Yes. Yes. Uh, I think I've encountered this. Uh, you've before, read this? I think, I think I've read the first book. Okay. It is a um, web comic. You can totally like go read it. I'm reading them in I have, book form. I have... 100% read the first book. Okay. Um, and somebody may have been playing a little goof on me uh, <laughs> and, and misrepresenting uh, what Starfighter was. Oh, okay. Uh, Did they say it was like just like cool sci-fi or something? I or? believe that is that is that is what I thought I was. Oh boy, no, for. this is this is a very risque, very um, there's there's very sub and dom kind of stuff going on in here for sure. Uh. Now, if if there's some, I'm not super far in. I haven't read. I think I'm in like the second book at this point. Maybe I'm a yeah. slow ass reader, especially with comics. I take forever in a day. Um, so I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know that anything has set off necessarily an alarm in my brain in terms of non consent. But that doesn't mean it's not there. I'm not going to deny that by any means. I may also have been. Uh, very well prepared for this because uh, Amanda immediately laughed at me and said, oh, you went right for the smut. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. It's smut. Sounds good. Let's read it. Let's have some fun watching the smut or reading the smut, whatever. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of dicks in it. There's, there's sure a lot of dicks, uh, which is fun and interesting. We don't have to unpack this for like two hours or anything, but I sure am like... Not necessarily getting erotic enjoyment out of this. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not. I'm just saying it's not really necessarily that for me. It's more... I'm actually really just interested in what's going to happen next at any given moment. Because, like, at any given moment, it's either going to be sex will happen, or you find Space out more battles. about this weird world. This weird, like, yeah. sort of Battlestar Galactica world where... Half of these dudes are, it seems to be all dudes. I think the only women who show up at all are like in this like weird celestial place. They're like the intelligence agency of this world. And they say, oh, the aliens are going to come kill us. So whatever. It's pretty much all dudes. And it's dudes in white who are the navigators. And I guess they're kind of like the engineers. And there's dudes in black who are the fighters. And of course, it's like a very sub-dom thing that's going on between them in the actual like sexy time stuff. Um... But it's also, like, this weird, like, meditation on on submissives and, and dominant people. Like, it's very, I don't know, it's really, really interesting. Um, this, again, could be something we could talk about further at, at some oh, other yeah. time. When we're oh, not, yeah. Uh, me, when I'm me, not just sort of mentioning it. Investigate it again. But, like, uh. th there's there's some violence, for sure. There's There's a lot of, like, hey... I don't know. Is this okay? Did they discuss this before? I don't know. Yeah, I'm just gonna say. And I think that's. I think that's where I started to have trouble with it. So, if you haven't read this comic uh, before, you get into it. What you should know is content yeah, warning. A little, <laughs> little bit BS. It is. It is. Uh, it's BDSG. Uh, <laughs> it's. Um, it is. It has some BSG elements, but like, 
imagine Top Gun where Goose is a sexy, naive sub. Yes, yes. And Maverick is, I would argue, a truly, like, an actual, like, sexual sadist dom. Sure, sure. And, uh... That sort of surprises Goose, but then it just goes off in directions. And here's the other thing. Guys, <laughs> they all die in droves, right? That's the other aspect of this is, like, yeah. nobody's expected to live long, um, which was kind of tricky. But, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's very, like, all right, we're here to be pilots. And then it's uh, extremely, yeah, smutty isn't a bad word for it. Yeah, it's very smutty. It's total smut. It's very... <sighs> very racy there's a lot of things huge content warning like if any kind of uh, anything that that isn't like how do i phrase this uh if bdsm stuff and death and violence and violence that sort of teeters on the sexual is uh of a is gonna be an issue you should not go near it that you should stay no matter how much you away. like spaceships, no matter how much you like spaceships, exactly. You should stay the fuck away because it it does go to some some places that are very potentially uncomfortable. Um, I'm really interested in it, and I really want to see what happens next. Again, okay. I'm really interested in this world. I'm interested in this weird exploration of sub and dom personality, and if the world were literally like divided by sub and doms, and they all flew spaceships. Something about that is clicking with me quite a bit. So if you would like to wa- to read a whole bunch of very gay smut, you should <laughs> definitely check out Starfighter. Call Amanda Cosmos. Call at- our buddy. <laughs> she knows she knows the good smut, I guess. She she she's never led me astray. I'll Does be honest. She, she has always shown me things that I have at the very least found interesting. I have never been bored while watching anything she has given me to watch or reading anything she's given me to read. So I will say that. That's my that's my real weekend project. My real endorsement is Amanda. That's the truth. <laughs> it's a good endorsement. I've never been I've never been bored. Yeah, never look, been bored. Not look, once. Look, look, we we have a friend that like <laughs> if you ask, will crack open that seal and show you what's behind that door. It's pretty awesome. But you have to like you have to be willing to accept what's on the other side. It's true. That is yeah. true. But you sh- she'll tell you what's on the other side though. She's, there's no yeah. there's no surprises with with anything. No bad surprises. I'll just put no. it that way. All right. Well, I I'm going to stop talking about my gay smut now. Um I don't know, man. It's interesting. Okay, cool. Uh I think with that <laughs> it's probably time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode the long of long weekend. This is a long weekend. I'm going to Scotland. It's very exciting. I'm uh I'm taking a real vacation, so I'm happy about it. Um yeah. Anyway, this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate you spending a little time with us here. And also, if you could tell your friends, tell your BDSM gay lovers, if you could tell, you know, your anybody that you co-pilot. think, your sexy co-pilot, uh, your sexy navigator, if you if you could tell all your subs, all your doms, everybody that you know uh, that you think might enjoy the show, 
uh, please do so because word of mouth is how we get the word out and we really, really do appreciate it. And also, if you could take a second and rate us on iTunes and please don't uh, rate us poorly because I discussed uh, sexy, smutty uh, web comics about um, hot fighter pilots. That would that would be cool. Just, you know, the other stuff, if that's what you're into. <laughs> so thank you again so much. We really do appreciate it. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs>